0: Welcome to The Honest Report, a weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. Violence escalating between Israel and the Palestinians, hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza toward Israel people running for cover. We start the show with the breaking news that has been coming in. Israeli police are saying that at least seven people have been injured in a car ramming and stabbing attack in Tel Aviv. Hundreds of rockets fired from Gaza towards Israel. People running for cover on this Tel Aviv beach as air defense systems blew rockets out the sky. Here's your host, Rob Walker. In 2011, after a large earthquake and tsunami struck Japan, killing tens of thousands of people, Israeli teams were on the ground providing critical relief and rescue operations. That earthquake, which also created a large nuclear meltdown and the discharge of radioactive water in Fukushima, was one of the largest natural disasters in recent memory, but it still didn't stop Israelis from coming to the other side of the world to offer aid. Yotam Politzer was there, leading the efforts of Israel Aid, an Israeli humanitarian aid group, which has become one of the most widely recognized Israeli organizations around the world, having operated in Sierra Leone, Liberia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. Today Yotam is Israel Aid's CEO, and he joins us to discuss his views on what makes Israel time and time again a heavyweight when it comes to lending a helping hand to those who need it most urgently around the world. Welcome to the Honest Report Podcast. Yotem Paulzer, welcome to the Honest Report podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, you are, of course, the uh, chief executive officer at, uh, at Israel Aid, a position you've held for, uh, for about a decade now. Um, it, it, truly a remarkable organization. Uh, you're active uh, at this time in more than a dozen locations all around the world, and in uh, all sorts of uh, emergency aid in places like Ukraine and Africa, uh, Colombia. Uh, tell us about uh, what uh, what Israel Aid is uh, is doing in Ukraine right now. So Israel Aid,
1: um, first of all, um, yeah, I mean we are usually whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world, it could be in Ukraine, but it could be also in a very remote location like Colombia or Vanuatu in the Pacific. Um, we arrive in the first seventy-two hours. Uh, and provide immediate relief, whether it's medical support, access to clean water, psychological care, et cetera. But more importantly, um, in you know after a month or two, most organizations leave. Um, unfortunately, what we know all around the world, but especially in a place like Ukraine, which is an ongoing disaster, is that the recovery takes years. So we stay an average of five years in a place to help people get back on their feet, to train them so they will have the skills and the capacity to support themselves. So in that sense, Ukraine, um, we're doing a number of things. One is mental health support. You know, the whole country is basically traumatized. So we partnered with the first lady, Yelena Zelenska, um, on on a big initiative. We trained and hired 60 clinical psychologists who deployed to 14 different hospitals all around the country and really supporting the people who are worst affected by by this ongoing war. We brought um, 12 systems of reverses or smosis um, to the city of Mykolaev, which was completely bombed by the Russians um, and especially the water system uh, was bombed. So people didn't have access to clean water and our water system is now provide 40,000 people um, with access to clean water on a daily basis. And we sent about 520 trucks full of medical supplies for a total of worth of about $30 million um, from neighboring Romania from our logistics hub to, I think, 32 cities in Ukraine right now, we have about 32 people on the ground in Ukraine as we speak, um, you know, risking their life and doing this work. And we're not going anywhere. And unfortunately, this
0: war and crisis doesn't go anywhere. So we'll be there as long as we're needed. And so. You know, as an organization, you've been around since uh, 2001, Israel Aid. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the genesis of uh, of how it was founded.
1: So 2001, a group of activists in Israel came together and basically um, realized that, yes, we have our own challenges in Israel, for sure, whether it's the ongoing conflict, you know, the trauma of the Holocaust, the um, water scarcity, and many other challenges. But actually, because of these challenges, we developed tools and technologies and soft skills that could and should be shared with the world's most vulnerable communities. So that was the vision behind Israel, to bring Israeli expertise, Israeli technologies, Israeli innovation, not just uh, for business purposes, but actually to the global south and to disaster areas around the world. And since the establishment of the organization more than 21 years, 22 years ago, Um, We've been to more than 60 countries responding to crisis. And as we speak right now, we have teams, as you mentioned, 14 countries, um, about 350 full-time staff. It started as a volunteer-based organization, but now we have 350 paid staff. Um, The majority of them, by the way, are local people that we trained and hired. Um, Our headquarters is based in Tel Aviv. We have about 52 people there. And um, yes, our focus is um, areas where Israel, unfortunately, not because everything is perfect, but because of our challenges, have expertise in. So whether it's, it's trauma care and psychological support, um, water and sanitation using water technology, um, medical support, especially public health, um, and emergency relief, and and again, we we, we probably you probably know that Israelis um, thrive in chaos. Huh. So um unfortunately when you reach a disaster situation it's very chaotic but you need to improvise you need to innovate and um, and that's really part of our DNA.
0: And now uh, Israel I mean of course you know being active in Eastern Europe and in South America is one thing but tell us a little bit about has the organization been involved in in countries where uh, Israel does not have diplomatic relations. So
1: we had a number of operations, Um, most recently in Afghanistan, where we actually evacuated more than 200 uh, human rights activists, including the first Afghan girls cycling team, the first Afghan girls robotics team. In fact, one of our main partners was a Canadian uh, philanthropist, Sylvan Adams. Uh, Together with him and with his support, we we evacuated these girls. Uh, We worked also with with another uh, family foundation and and we had to, bring free private jets to um to rescue these girls we had to print passports for them it was a kind of a operation that is a combination of james bond and Fauda. Okay. and um thankfully almost all of these girls are now safe in canada
0: now how does that work logistically when you're dealing with uh you know in a country where not only there's no diplomatic relations with israel but there's quite often a significant amount of hostilities, right? When they discover, I mean, Israel aid, your Israeli identity is not a secret. How do you, how does that work? Right, right. So
1: we had to be very careful. Um, when we send people to these countries, they don't go on an Israeli passport. Uh, we can't be very visible about our identity. Um, these Afghan girls, for instance, had no idea they'd been rescued and evacuated by an Israeli group until they were actually out of the country. Then, of course, they realized that now each one of them is sending me a message. But um, but it's it's um, the safety of our team members and the safety of our beneficiaries is obviously our first priority. Um, we worked a lot well with Syrian refugees. And I remember one of them telling me uh, when he found out that we're Israelis and we treated his daughter, he said, my worst enemy became my biggest supporter. Um, and we had many of these stories. Um, again, it's one thing to work inside a country um, that don't have diplomatic relations or with refugees from this country once they actually out. Um, we did both. Uh, we did much more of the latter. We m- much more working with Afghan Syrian refugees once they actually crossed the border. So again, they didn't expect to receive support from Israelis and I would say they were positively shocked. Um, but we didn't get any hostilities from the refugees. They were extremely grateful and um, yes, um, and, and we saw how this work is not only about saving lives, but also about building bridges and changing people's perspective.
0: Now, what's what's the message that you and your team, uh, Yotam, must, uh, must see when you're entering a country that, uh, Afghanistan is one example, and there's certainly many others, where there's overt hostility on a governmental level. But then when you dig down and you meet the people individually, there's little to none and there's appreciation and openness. I mean, what... What are the lessons that your team sort of takes back to their own uh, their own personal lives and their own their own perspective to see you know what what reality is like uh, beneath the surface?
1: Well, so 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 when when you go to these countries, um, where we go to these countries again, the government, as I said, is one thing, but we always work with the people, we always work with local partners, we always work with local communities, and you know we're very surprise but we really never faced any significant hostility
0: it's very uh, certainly very encouraging uh, encouraging thing so uh, you know you know Israel of course has had a tremendous reputation uh, in, in in Haiti and in Turkey all over the place when it comes to emergency response and emergency preparedness what's really the overarching message here that when you're going out there it's it's trying to identify issues and fix them along the way or is it really trying to create a certain self uh, sense of uh, self self-suffici- self-sufficiency rather uh, among the, uh, the countries where you're working?
1: The self-sufficiency is the key. I mean yes, Im- immediate response is crucial and and that's when you you find survivors and, and the recent earthquake in Turkey um, the IDF did a phenomenal job They found 19 survivors. Uh, our team uh, that I led in Nepal after the earthquake in 2015, we found the last survivor of the earthquake, who is a woman who survived after six days without food or water. I mean, yes, that's saving life. And that's very, very important and the key. But uh, even more difficult and more challenging and more important, I believe, is to stay. Because unfortunately, what happens is whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world, the whole world is there. Everyone wants to send you know, their grandmother's socks a donation. The media is obviously there. But once the, the cameras move on, you know, people t- move to the next tweet on social media, um, then um, it's very hard to get for these people to get support. And we know that also many of these countries and many of these uh, communities will suffer from disasters every year, you know, whether it's um, typhoons or hurricanes or floods or, or conflicts. So the key is really to help them and, you know, and strengthen their capacity so they can support themselves. And it means we have to do a lot of training and mentoring and um, accompanying them for this process. And, and there's no magic solution. It takes a lot of time. And that's why we, we are on average about five years in a location. Um, so our work is much more of that. I would say it's about 80% of our work is this long-term resilience and recovery, uh, where about 20% is the actual immediate relief.
0: And how do you figure, I mean, you figure out where to go? There, there's a, there must be an overwhelming need. And while Israel is, is well-established and, and, and all over the world, I mean, it must, it must be a tremendous challenge in identifying what is a, a priority for now. Right, right.
1: I mean, the good news is that now, um, and, and that kind of change and developed in the last few years, we have our own in-house emergency response team which includes our health professionals, our water professionals, our trauma specialists. So um, whenever there's a crisis, the team is on call and ready to deploy. Now, um, the key in each of these places is obviously to identify local partners that we can train, that we can partner with, and that we can work with in the long-term. But I would say the metrics is first of all, the scale of the crisis. Second is uh, the partners that we can identify on the ground. And third, unfortunately, is the funding, which, you know, is always limited and there's always short or you know shortage of resources. Uh, we do have an emergency fund that helps us, um, kind of be proactive. And so we're not only dependent on the news cycle, which we you know brings kind of a lot of donations and support. And, uh, and we have quite a few generous donors who trust us now and, and support this emergency fund. Um, and sometimes we don't know, so we s- will send a very small team. To do what we call uh, rapid assessment, and to see if we have an added value and if our expertise is actually needed, and if we can find a, a local partner. Um, we also know that right now we are in fifteen, in fourteen countries. Sorry, we can't really be in more than twenty countries at once. So, um, in order to be able to respond to new crises, we have to slowly but surely phase out of other countries and other ca- crises. Um, so. You know that's that's uh, at some point a few years ago we were in 22 countries and I think and we really felt that we were spreading ourselves too thin. So um, yeah, we have to pick our battles.
0: Now sometimes there can be dangers to your team on the ground in 2000 or after the 2011 uh, tsunami in uh, in Japan, which destroyed the the nuclear Fukushima nuclear power plant. Um, you know how did your team deal with? The physical dangers, uh, radiation killed people there as well. Uh, how did your team deal with that threat?
1: Well, we we were extremely careful. We had Israeli uh, professors who were experts for radiation who guided us. We were working with guided hunters. We, um, you know, did the maximum we can to not expose ourselves and our team members. And um, well, so far we're okay. But you know, we, I can give you other examples, like in the Ebola. Uh, where I was for about nine months in Sierra Leone, uh, and the survival rate at that point was 50 percent. Um, so so that was really scary. And, um, and and we we had to take a lot of kind of measurements and and, and and be extra careful. And sometimes you you mentioned Haiti before. so Haiti, we were there for eight years after the earthquake. and then they had another earthquake uh, in 2021 and we read, went back there. Um, but after six months, we had to phase out, you know, and and it's not because everything is perfect there. There's enough work there for the next hundred years. But we phased out because there were so many kidnaps of aid workers. And uh, from a safety and security perspective, we couldn't keep our team there. That was a big, big concern. And our, our security team, we have a security team in-house and we have outsourced um, another other security specialist. And their their clear recommendation was to phase to 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 pull out at this point. Hopefully, we'll be able to come back um, when it's a bit safer.
0: No, we talked about that. Israel is, is widely recognized as as a pioneer and one of the first responders on the ground, no matter where it is. What is it? That's remarkable in its own right, but I think all the more so given Israel's small size. What is it that you think Yotam has not only founded your organization twenty odd years ago, but really the Entire Israeli spirit of despite manifold challenges in your own backyard of going out, you know, from Haiti to Turkey, or Ukraine, wherever to try to address humanitarian disasters. What's in the Israeli psyche and DNA that that makes you do that?
1: I mean, I think it really is tied very deeply to the um, to the startup mentality. Um, we kind of see ourselves as the humanitarian wing of the startup nation, and um Israel is, you know, as I said, we're thriving chaos. We're very good at improvising and innovating. And, and that's what you need to do in a crisis area because, you know, all the protocols you have, uh, you know, could be great. But when a tsunami of uh, 120 feet, uh, 35 meters high heat in Japan, you know, all of that is not relevant. You have to find creative solutions. You have to be innovative. Um, that's number one. Number two is, um, everything I mentioned about the challenges that Israel have, and the solution that were developed in Israel. Um, the other aspect I think is the fact that Israelis love traveling. You know, uh, we we I started my my journey before Israel, even in in my uh, what I call my Humus trail, right? Like the Humus trail where all the Israelis go after the army. That's when I found myself in Nepal. And I ended up staying there for three years volunteering and also working for the Israeli embassy and volunteering with Street Children for uh, Tevel and another organization. So um, a lot of Israelis love to travel and they love other culture. They love to go uh, above and beyond. And, um, and I think that field is very, very aligned. But um but I also think there's more to do. I don't think we're doing enough as a country. I think there's more um, technology, there's more expertise that, um, we could bring. We uh, have recently partnered with a number of Israeli tech companies whose technology was not made for disaster relief, but we found it to be extremely helpful. Not only in, you know, in water technology, but also in data management, um, you know, coordination and communication, which is very important um, when everything is sort of destroyed. So um, I think there's a lot that's going on, but there's much more to do. And obviously the idf um you know which is uh the, the obvious right the but everyone goes to the idf and everyone gets basic training and the idf um home from co- home front command the search and rescue team the field hospital they're the best in the world um so for me it's just natural that we will
0: use these skills and experience to to help the most vulnerable well, Tom, thank you uh, so much, uh, you know, not just for your time, but uh, for the work you're doing and, and for helping us uh, uh, get a picture of Israel that, uh, you know, that the, the kind of thing that the world doesn't see and the, the media often doesn't report. So thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our mailing list, our podcast channel, and follow us on social media for the most up-to-date news. If you like what you've heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts at www.honestreporting.ca slash donate. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.